night. I always, people always laugh. Like I tell you the punchline of my sheer in the first one second, that's the punchline. Um, and then next week we're going to be asking the why questions. Why is this a thing that happened? Is this good? What are we supposed to learn from it? Why is this a thing that we're spending all day on Rosh Hashanah, both days, reading about and like vaguely thinking about and vaguely also not thinking about? Like, what does it have to do with the themes of the day? Today, we're going to say it has to do with birth of the world. Okay, got it. Birth of the world. But Rosh Hashanah is also Yom HaZikaron, uh, right? This day of remembrance, this day where God sits in judgment over all creation like what is maternal sacrifice have to do with any of that how are we when we read these texts on Rosh Hashanah what are we supposed to be thinking about how are we supposed to find it meaningful I know that for many people if they're struggling with infertility and then you just have this day that seems like it's all about either infertility or like the death or separation of children um it's like a really hard and awful um, day and um, and the liturgy doesn't doesn't seem to help and like how do we why is this here why is this what we're talking about how do we make meaning out of it um, and uh, just to give you the punchline of next week um, it's basically just that creation is like hard and dirty and messy and if that's what we're talking about then like that's what we're talking about you know if we're celebrating creation then then we gotta be in Judaism, I feel like the thing about Torah that I love the most is just how honest it is. We're in the mess with Torah, and this is the mess of creation, and that's what we're here to talk about through maternal sacrifice and the birthing of the world. So with that, let's get into some sources, and we'll actually kind of take you through all the things I just said in a much slower kind of pace. Um, okay, so in our Mahzor, we have this refrain um and um a lot of places sing it like this is really one of the more if I said to you like recite Malchio, you know like you might not actually be able to do that even though that's a very kind of essential part of the Rosh Hashanah davening but if I said to you recite Hayom Harat Olam a lot of people would have a tune for that in their heads um it, and um, so here it is. So Hayom Harat Olam, there's a lot of different ways to translate it. Uh, to this day, the world was born. This day, the world came into being. Um, but Harayon means pregnancy, not birth. So maybe today the world is pregnant, um, right? That's very kind of complicated language. So what part one, right? Today, there's like a birth or like a pregnancy thing. Also, the tense of it, of, of harat, is, is complicated. Um, similarly, is it on this day the world was pregnant, today the world is pregnant, all of that, like very um, complicated. On this day, God makes stand in judgment, all the creatures of the world. And there's two possible relationships in which we stand in judgment. And I think that's actually really an important thing. And that becomes this theme throughout the high holidays on Yom Kippur, we blow it up even bigger. What is the relationship that we're standing here in? And it's wild. Like people don't talk about that often enough. Like 
I'm standing here and I actually don't know what my relationship with God is in this moment. What a destabilizing thing. When I talk to my children, I always know that I'm their mom. When I talk to my spouse, I always know that he's my spouse. When I talk to my brother, I always know that he's my brother. Like it's almost, and, and, and if you don't know what you are, then you feel like, wow, like, am I on the verge of, of like a breakup? Like, is this relationship? I don't understand it. Like what a complicated thing. So in this text, the two options are Banim or Avadim. And I want to hold that. Either were children or were slaves. Um, which is also interesting because when we relate to Hashem as Melech, so like if you're Melech, then what am I? I'm like a subject, right? Am I your Eved? Am I your child? Like, and it speaks also to the complexity of like, what is our relationship to a king? Is a king a father? Is a king of Yinu Malkinu? Or are, there, are those, as one, those things are the same? Or are those things different? We have an Av and then a Ben and then a Melech, and then maybe an Eved. Um, anyways, okay, so complicated. So, um, so if we are children, have compassion on us as a parent has on children. And if we're servants, then we're totally dependent on you, then our eyes are fixed upon you until you find favor in us and bring forth our judgment as light reverend and holy one okay so this is really complicated and probably you don't think through the complexity with regularity because you're like or whatever you know whatever the tune is in your head you're not like oh my gosh am i a slave or am i a child like those are relationships, right? Um, and um, I think when the world was created, it wasn't so complicated and it got complicated over time. So we're going to talk about that also. Okay. So the next question is, right, when we say, oh, what happened on Rosh Hashanah? On Rosh Hashanah, the world was created. Well, guess what? If you open up the first chapter of Brishi, the world was not created in one day. And Rosh Hashanah is not seven days long. So like, what is Rosh Hashanah? So the Midrash ultimately says Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation. So right, there's a few different articulations of this in, in the Midrash, and I brought you from Vayikaraba for a certain reason, but there's other ones that say more explicitly, like, Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation, okay, so, but here in Vayikaraba, we have um, the Maftir that we read over and over again on Rosh, or twice, I guess, on Rosh Hashanah, not over and over, but, uh, but it comes up also, right, on the seventh month, on the first of the month, which is, um, which is Rosh Hashanah. I should also mention that there's a debate in the Gemara about when the world was created. So there's one opinion says it was created in Tishrei, and one opinion says it was created in Nisan. So, but now we're gonna say, oh, we're going with the opinion that it was created in Tishrei. Great. So Nintina Talmer, oh, and and then here in the ellipsis, it, it was like complicated and this isn't really the point. I'm only getting to like, Rosh Hashanah is a commemoration of day six of creation. And what happened on that day? Nintina Talmer, the Yom Rosh Hashanah. So it comes out that what you're saying is on the day of Rosh Hashanah, 
the first hour of the day that is Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the seventh month, the first hour of that day, right, right as, as the morning breaks, Allah the idea of creation came in to God's head, for a real head, um, right? So at the right, like sun rises on Rosh Hashanah, and and that's exactly when when a Kaddish Baruch Hu said, Adam Oh no, sorry, in the second hour. That's when God actually said it. So the first hour, God had the thought. The second hour, In the second hour, Hashem says to the angels um, who serve him, okay, like, let's do this. Um, Bishlishit Kanas Afaro, in the third hour, God gathered all the dirt to create Adam, Bereviit, Gibolo, and in the fourth hour, he needed it, um, Bechamishit Rikmo, and in the fifth hour, he wove it, um, Bishishit Asao Golem, in the sixth hour, he made form, Bishvi'it nafachbo neshama in the seventh hour, God blew life into it, which is also, there's like a nice like shofar blowing life image there. Bishmi'it ichnisolagan in the sixth hour. Okay, man was alive for a full hour, by the way, before he was ever put into Gan Eden, which you, you do see from the text that that's like a, a separate step from the creation of a person, but you don't really think like, oh, like Gan Eden was actually... Adam's second home, just like interesting side note. Um, so in the ninth hour, Adam was commanded about the fruit, about what not to, what to eat and what not to eat. Basirit avar in the tenth hour, Adam violated those rules. So by the way, what happens between the ninth hour and the tenth hour? Adam receives the nevuah command from God. He doesn't really tell the whole thing over the Chava. Chava meets the snake. The snake convinces her. She eats the fruit. She brings it to Adam. And that happened. That's all the case of between the ninth hour and the 10th hour. In the 11th hour in Nidon, in the 11th hour, they are judged. And in that 12th hour, Adam was pardoned. To the extent that Adam was pardoned. Um, and then, um, but because of that judgment that happened on that all in that first day, the first day that Adam was created, he immediately sinned, immediately was judged. He was put into the, the garden for, for one hour. He was commanded the next hour. And by the hour after that command, he could not stand up for that command for even one hour. This is a theme. It appears in a few different midrashim. This idea that Adam Harishon could not stand up for, like, could not live under commandments. It comes up, by the way, just if you're interested in this theme, it comes up really interestingly in midrashim about Sinai, where the question is like, why Why didn't you give the Torah to, to Adam? Like, why wasn't the Torah given from the beginning? And the answer is like, Adam couldn't deal with even these commandments. How could he deal with 613? Which is also so interesting because we don't normally think of ourselves as like better than Adam. But the Midrash sort of has this theme of like, yes, actually humans have improved over time such that we can have mitzvot and he actually couldn't. Uh, which is also just like, there's a lot of side notes in this year, sorry. Um, okay, 
Um, so right, so then Amar Kadosh Baruch Adam. So Rosh Hashanah was created on this day when Hashem said to Adam, "Zasiman lebanacha kashim shamaratal fanai bedin hayom azav yatata bedimos rachatidim banacha la amuda fanai bedin beyom zav yotzim lefanai bedimus." So God says to Adam on that day, this is a sign for your children for all generations that just as you stood before me on this day in judgment and you were pardoned, so too in the future your children will stand in front of me on this day and they too will be pardoned. And what is that day? On the seventh month, on the first of the month. Okay, so we're going to just remember this idea that Adam was pardoned. So it's not so obvious that Adam was pardoned. Um, and um, and is, is it so obvious that we should walk away from Rosh Hashanah with the same fate as Adam? That's going to be a big driving question here. Um, and that's really a question that we'll look at for next week. But it's a question that we're hoping to raise with like highlighted exclamation points this week. Okay. So let's back up and talk a little bit about Hashem's parenting journey. I think all parenting journeys start long before there's ever a child. Um, the Gemara Nebodah describes how Hashem spends Hashem's time, which is like wild and amazing and funky. And you don't have to believe that any of this is like actually what Hashem does. And certainly if you're um, sufficiently Maimonidean, this doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and there's, you know, lots and lots and lots of like Jewish ideas about what Hashem is and does that that don't align with this at all. But I do think it's just like a really interesting kind of fun um, idea that comes out of the Gemara. And we can look at this Gemara and like eliminate the parts that have to do with humans. And we get a sense for like how Hashem's time would be spent if the world had never been created. Um, so we can just, oh, just like imagine that for a second. So Rabbi Huda says in the name of Rav, there are 12 days, the 12 hours in the day. Um, and we're going to divide that up into three sections. So the, the, um, um, oh, sorry, we're going to divide that up into, uh, yeah, into a few sections. So the first three hours of the day, so the first three hours of the day, Hashem sits and learns Torah. Could Hashem have done that if he didn't create the world? Yes, he could have. In the second set of hours of the day, Hashem sits and judge, sits in judgment of the world. If Hashem had not created the world, would not have to do that. And it gets worse, right? Because once he's um, judging the world, he gets he gets angry. <laughs> when Hashem sees, this is every day. This is the second shift of Hashem's day. Every single day, he sits there. He's judging the world. He sees the world is supposed to be destroyed. And so, what does he do? What does Hashem do when he sees the world is supposed to be destroyed? Um, Omid Mikisei Hadin, Hashem stands up from his throne of judgment, and he goes and sits in the throne of mercy. So Hashem has this like big emotional anger, like rage section of the day that's just like scheduled in part of my day. I watch my creation and I feel angry about it. And then I have to go sit in my Rachamim chair in order to feel a little bit less angry and not destroy the world okay and then in the next shift of the day the third shift of the day you'll say 
Yoshiv, Vizanet, Kololam, Kulo. So in the third shift, Hashem, now Hashem didn't destroy the world. He actually has to keep providing for it in this ongoing way. Hashem provides for food for the world, um, for all the different kinds of animals, from the horns of wild oxen to the eggs of lice. And then finally, in the fourth section of the day, he sits and plays with the Leviathan. So imagine if Hashem had never created the world. What would he spend his time doing? The first half of the day, Hashem would learn Torah. The second half of the day, Hashem would play with his pet whale, okay? And then the Gemara asks, cool, what does Hashem do at night? The night is awesome. Um, it, wait, there's 12 hours, right? You could say, so you could say Hashem does the same thing at night as he does during the day. Okay, that's the boring answer. Um, and he, right, so you could also say that he rides around on his crew. He rides around on his cherub, the shot, and he flies into 18,000 worlds. Um, okay, and you could also say, and you could also say, that God sits and listens to the songs from the mouths of the angelic creatures. So what does God do at night? Maybe God does the same thing as in the day, or maybe God goes on a trip on his cherub, or he listens to the heavenly orchestra. So just to like give you a sense that if God had not created the world, God's life would be awesome. God would have so much leisure time. God would listen to music. God would go on joy rides. God would play with his pet. God would learn Torah. What an amazing life. All the stressful parts of the day have to do with this like caretaking vis-a-vis children thing, some of which are really emotionally intense and hard, okay? And if any of you are parents of young children um, or even not young children, some of this might sound familiar to you from your life pre-children and now your life post-having children. Maybe this feels a little bit relatable. You also used to go to concerts. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right, so here's where it is. Now we're gonna turn we're gonna turn to the Torah. This is, um, we're in, I guess, I don't know, like the second hour of the day on Rosh Hashanah where, um, oh no, uh, never mind, sorry. We are in the like actually creating part of it. God created a human in the divine image. The only thing I've ever created in my image is my firstborn child who looks identical to me. Um, so, right, like, what does it mean to create something in your image? That is to have a child. Um, and obviously, we know our children are not exactly in our image, that they're their own people and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. All I'm saying is, to me, this seems a lot like parenthood. Um, God created them, male and female, whatever that means here. Um, and God blessed them, right? So some... I heard someone once say, you know what the real curse was? The real curse is that they needed to have children. But I thought that was not totally correct because before there's ever a curse, we're still in the um, we're still in the blessing part. It's literally the opposite of a curse. By God bless them and said to them, 
be fertile, increase, fill the earth, master it, have dominion over all the animals, etc. Okay, then all this bad stuff happens, sin, snake, etc. fruit. Okay, now we have what does human procreation actually look like? So we just had God's procreation and we kind of saw what it did to God. What it did to God was totally messed up his day. And immediately he had a kid, the kid was bad. He had to judge, he had to, uh, he had to pardon. He had to make a whole thing out of it. What's the curse that humans have to deal with now? Oh, when you have kids, they're gonna be just as much trouble for you as you are to me. That's the curse to Chava. Belisha Amar, Harba, Arba, Etzvonich, Vahironich. I'll greatly expand your hard labor and your pregnancies. In hardship shall you bear children. You, my children, caused me a hardship. Well, in reciprocity, you will get hardship. And the Midrash described this, by the way, as like a pardon. Maybe it's a pardon in the sense that they weren't killed, but it certainly seems like a, a punishment. Um, okay, and then also stuff about husband and whatever. We're going to skip that part for now. Okay. So here's where we're now in, in, um, in source six here. And Hashem says, okay, but we still have a problem, right? These people, they ate the fruit. And now they're going to actually be too similar to us. The problem is they could be too close to us. We're going to come back to that next week. That's the problem. And, and now we have to separate um, because it could get worse, right? He could stretch out his hand and eat from the tree of life. And then he could eat that and he could live forever. What a disaster. So what does Hashem do? Hashem sends Adam away. So Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to till the soil from which he was taken. Right, got the kruvim that Hashem joy rides on. So now one of them has been delegated to uh, to sit over here. So, so Hashem drove Adam out. Um, and he stationed him um, far away and he put a guard and cherubs and turning sword and whatever. Okay, what is the first thing, right? Hashem sends Adam out. You're separated from me. What's the first thing that he does? Adam says, okay, I'm going to recreate exactly what just happened to me. Um, so Adam says, Adam says, um, and the first thing Adam does once he's kicked out is he has sex with his wife and she gets pregnant and they have Kain and because she and uh she names him I Kaniti Ish at Hashem at Achiv and then she has another baby at have at Havel, right? So that's Havel, and he becomes a keeper of sheep, and Kain becomes a tiller of the soil um so what have we tried to do okay like i guess right adam gets kicked out and adam says to himself like well like i guess i'm god now let's make some humans um and they make humans 
and they're doing the thing and it seems like they have food and they're surviving and it's it's sort of okay but immediately what happens immediately you get then you get kicked out again the next generation right god makes adam at god has to vayigarish adam from the garden adam makes kain and havel and immediately havel is killed and the kain now gets kicked out again the kain gets kicked out by god this Navanad Tiyaba Aretz, it's like a little bit different. It's not by Adam. Like Adam isn't the one giving out the punishment, but it still seems to be okay. This pattern, like already the beginning of this pattern of like create humans, expel them, create humans, kill or expel them. Like no generation actually gets to live with their next of kin. Um, it, the next of kin either die or get sent away all the way from the beginning. That is the story of God's pregnancy of Adam and then Chava's pregnancy of Cain and Havel. Parents do not get to keep their children. Okay. So then what happens, zoom forward to Abraham. And I think what we're gonna see is that we start the, the maternal sacrifice that Hashem modeled with both Adam and then with his children and then grandchildren with Cain and Havel is um gets gets paid forward again. And I think one of the things that 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 we saw it, it, when we were looking at Hayom Harad Olam with that ambiguity or discomfort, im kabanim, im kavadim, is and you're already starting to see this here, like who who is the father of these children? Like you, you see it already immediately with Cain, right? Cain does something bad and God judges it, not Adam. Where is Adam, right? Adam in absentia then leaves God to be the father of Cain and Havel, which is also kind of interesting. So, right, if the father is supposed to be the like adjudicator amongst the sons, if Cain's not, if, if Adam's not there, then God is doing it for him maybe um but also like or maybe not or maybe actually it's just Hashem pulling the strings we're just servants we're just doing the thing and I think that that lack of clarity is already kind of bubbling out in these first humans with their first relationship with God um and then I think what starts to happen is that this model gets replicated what are children to their parents? Um, and there's something very like destabilizing in that relationship that happens over and over again in exactly those same models and even with some of the same language as we saw with Adam and then with Cain. Okay, so here's Abraham's firstborn son. This is to reading on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Um, so Sarah sees Hagar, the Egyptian, um, sees the son who Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham, and Yitzchak is doing, and, and Yishmael is doing something that pisses Sarah off, maybe he's playing, maybe it's something sexual, that is a word that can have um, sexual connotations, it's very unclear what he did wrong, 
But Sarah has this really strong reaction to it. She says, send them away, right? Just like Hashem sent away Adam with Garish. Sarah says, Avraham, this is what parenting looks like. He misbehaved, send him away. He did something wrong. He violated the rules of our house, whatever that is. This is what, this is what it is. This is how you do it. Send him away, especially because he doesn't deserve this inheritance anymore. And so when someone doesn't deserve the inheritance, let's say of the Garden of Eden or of being the child of Abraham, what do you do? You send him away. Um, but Abraham doesn't like it. But Hashem says to Abraham, yeah, this is fine. This is what we do. <laughs> um, don't this is fine don't 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 see this as really bad listen to whatever Sarah tells you to do it's going to be your inheritance and this is again learning like what is parenting what is childhood what is inheritance what is a family line like everything that comes before this is so messed up in that regard and Avram wants it to be everyone and just wants to like love on all of his children and like this story is so very uncomfortable to us as readers and yet it's so continuous with all the previous stories which are also so uncomfortable okay um, and it's like, yeah, he'll be fine, you know, I'll send him out of Ghanedan, but like he'll have his own children and right, he'll have his own nation, and don't worry, he's still your kid, he'll just be like really far away. So Avram wakes up in the morning, which is also this like, this like crazy image that like Ishmael couldn't even walk at this point and uh which also like doesn't make any sense age-wise like why does she have to carry him but maybe he's like kicking and screaming right because Yitzhak is like it's like a teenager I mean Ishmael is a teenager by this time and um so why why is why is Hagar carrying him it's like a very kind of difficult painful image of Hagar like carrying food and water in one case and like a big potentially like angry child in another and um and leaving and then this kind of same language we had for Kayan Navanad Matelach Vateta Bimi Barba Er Shaba. Um uh, okay so then right and then kind of this is the sacrifice part right where the Water runs out. And she puts her child down under one of the bushes. And she goes and she sits far away. Because she says, I don't want to see my child die. I don't want to see my child die. She actually knows what death is, right? When Hevel died, no one knew what death was going to be. He's the first one to die ever. Uh, but now Hagar knows what death is. And she's like, oh, I know how this ends. This ends with my son dying. That's what it means. When you get kicked out of the garden, you die. Um, and that's what she's afraid of. Um, and 
so she sits far away and she cries maternal sacrifice and we never see by the way like we never see in the Torah we don't see Hashem crying <laughs> um after kicking out uh his own children who potentially will die and then do eventually die right with Havel no one seems to cry over Havel um but here we have Hagar crying over her sacrifice of Ishmael and then we know right Ishmael gets saved blah 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 but but there's this moment first and we have another mother crying this is we never see Sarah's pain about the Akedah is so intense that the Torah hides it from us um, but the Midrash doesn't. So the Midrash, there's a few different versions of this Midrash. But in this one, it imagines that Yitzchak actually goes back. He goes back home after. Shachazar Yitzchak etzel imo va'amralo. And she says to him, where have you been, my son? And he says to her, um, my father took me and my father took me and he led me up hills and down the dale. Um, you know, it went on this long journey. But Amra Voy Albri Derivata. Um, and she says after he tells this whole story about what happened to him, she says, Woe to the son of a woman drunk with grief. She says, if it weren't for the angel, he told her, oh, my father, they tried, he was about to slaughter me. And then the angel interceded. And she says, if it hadn't been for the angel, would you have been dead? Amarla in, he says to her, yes, I would have already been dead. Thereupon she screamed out six cries corresponding to the six shofar blasts. Amril. No sooner did she cry that she died. Hagar sits there crying, waiting for Ishmael to die. But Sarah retroactively hears about even just the potential of the sacrifice of her son, and she herself dies in that moment. Complicated, right? This perpetuation of Hashem's parenting model, children must be sent away, children must be sacrificed. Here we start to see women rising up against that. We start to see women crying over it, saying, protesting, saying this is wrong. But that's not the whole story of what can happen, um, these women, because we also have Hannah. And Hannah is the other direction. Hannah is like, participating, actively participating, right? And that's different than Sarah sending away Hagar's child. And then the Midrash says, yeah, but Sarah did protest when it was her child. Though, you know, it could be the case. Like if you just read the shot of the Psukim, you have no idea what Sarah's reaction to it is. And maybe Sarah realizes like, oh, I sent away someone else's kid. And if this is what parenting is, then like my kid will surely be sent away as well. And maybe I don't have a right to be so upset about it because that's actually just how this works, that you sent away your kid. And by the way, right? Like Avram left his parents. Sarah presumably left her parents. Like everyone leaves their parents. Children get sent away from their parents. That's just what it means. Um, that's how creation works. That's how parenting is. Um, 
And then you start to see at least Hagar as the first person to really protest it. Maybe in the Midrash, we have Sarah protesting it as well. But then we have Hana, who doesn't really protest. It's hard for her, but it was her idea. So she stuck with it. So when um, Hana is struggling with infertility and she makes this nether, this vow where she says, if you will see, look upon my suffering, right? What is Hannah's like sacrifice? It's it's almost like like her maternal sacrifice is the is actually the infertility. That's how she imagines it, at least when she's experiencing the infertility. Remember me and don't forget me, which is also like it's such Rosh Hashanah language. It was right? Remember me, don't forget. Zara Anashim, give me a male child. And then what will I do? I'll dedicate him to Hashem all days of his life and he'll never shave his head. Okay, another thing about like what the head shaving thing is about. Um, it, Okay, so then eventually, eventually she gets pregnant, she has her son, she calls him Shmuel because she says, uh, he's already um, either like I asked Hashem for him, or I borrowed him from Hashem. So that's the other read of those words, and you'll see that it'll get played on in a second. Um so then eventually she weans him and they go up and they bring Shmuel to like drop him off in his new home in Shiloh. So they brought a bull for a sacrifice and they bring the boy, the boy to Eli, who's the queen Adul. And she says, um, uh, please, sir. Um, I am the woman who stood here beside you and prayed. I daven for this boy. And Hashem granted me um, the what the the um what I asked of him. So I, in turn, lend him, right, um, to Hashem for all of these, uh, for as long as he lives, he is, like, lent out to Hashem um, for, for all time. So I am Hana. I made a promise that I would, in fact, sacrifice my son. I think this idea also of like, oh, I, I brought my son up for a sacrifice and like, here's my cow and here's my son and I'm bringing them together and the cow is now dead and my son will be here for the rest of his life. This like willing sacrifice and we see, you know, going forward that she, um, and we'll, we'll probably look at this next week, um, that she brings him sweaters every year and she misses him and she thinks about him in this like really kind of beautiful, incredible manner. Um, but unlike Hagar and unlike potentially Sarah, we don't see her, her tears come before, almost like her maternal sacrifice was sacrifice for the dream of sacrificing. Like I aspire to sacrifice my son, allow me to have a child so that I will sacrifice him, which is 
really like this next crazy step in this crazy lineage of like Hashem sacrificed Adam, Hashem then sacrifices his grandsons to Cain and Havel, and then Abraham gets forced into sacrificing Ishmael, and Hagar sacrifices Ishmael. Sarah is like so compromised and sacrificed with Isaac that she's with Yitzchak that she's written out of the story. Hannah says, I know how this goes. Children are for sacrificing. I really want a child. So let me name it from the outside. Children are for sacrificing. I'll dive in for that. And I'll promise for that. And she takes agency in what until her seems to be this very like non-agentic process. Um, and she says, yeah, children are for sacrificing. If you bring me a child, I'll sacrifice it. And she brings the child to the or to the to the Mishkan, and she does just that. But it's not really the end of the story, because then the next day is Haftara. In the second day of of Roshana, we have a mother who never stops crying. We have the cry is heard in Ramah. Wailing, bitter, weeping, Rachel, Mevaka, Albanaha, Rachel, weeping for her children, she refuses to be comforted for her children who are gone, Albanaki, Nanu. The part that's not told when you read about Rachel only through the lens of Yermiahu is Rachel's sacrifice of her own life. It's the opposite of Hannah. Hannah says, Hannah struggles with infertility and says, if I have a son, I will sacrifice my son. And Rachel really, really, really wants a son, has one, has another one, and ends up herself sacrificed for the purposes of that son in the process. Um, so the Rachel thing, Hannah is the first flip of like a woman who recognizes the pattern and tries to take control over it. And Rachel in the original story, or in the original story, in the Brashid story of Rachel, Rachel is like the, the most victim of all of them because she doesn't even survive the, right? Her child isn't sacrificed, but she is instead like is that better is that worse I'm, you know it's complicated I guess I'm sure people could see it both ways um but then Rachel has this afterlife almost and then it's not a choice right she both dies and she's still crying for her sacrificed children even from beyond the maternal sacrifice continues no matter what no matter where you are, this model that was kind of set up for the original children, the original children are sacrificed, Adam and Eve are sent out, and everyone generation after generation sends out over and over and over again, and we read about it on Rosh Hashanah, the day when God sent his own children out, like the, the day where God models I created you in my own image and now I'm going to sacrifice you. That's a day where we read over and over again these stories about women whose children are sacrificed. And somehow that's meant to um, be like a meaningful addition to the day. This like disturbing story of sacrificed children just over and over again of mothers who 
lose their children to starvation, whose children are almost killed by their own husbands, who lose themselves in the process, who try and take agency over it, but like Hana, but then, you know, at the end of the day, um, Hana doesn't win. Like she gets her, oh, she does win afterwards in a sense, right? That the, the um, story in Shmuel tells us that Hana then goes on to have other children who she gets to keep with her. Um, but but she doesn't get to keep Shmuel. She's just making him sweaters. Um, and um, it's a really, really like hard and complicated and confusing theme. Um, and I have a lot of ideas about like what this story is about and why on Rosh Hashanah, we just talk about like this divine model of maternal sacrifice. And we just retell that same narrative in all of these different ways. But all these narratives, they're a little bit different here or there. Oh, maybe Hannah's in some ways more successful. Maybe Rachel is like the least successful because she dies and her children die eventually. Um, and But they're all just sort of like iterations of the same horrible thing. And like, what is that about? And why is that the version of, why is that the piece of the creation story that echoes through this day so intensely? Like, why couldn't it have been like, I don't know, the creation of fish, you know? Like, why are we not, <laughs> why is that not the piece of creation that we are bringing back over and over again on, on these days of Rosh Hashanah? So um, I know that I see that maybe some people have, um, questions um and that there's actually a surprising amount of time um usually I go over and this time I was like oh I'll be conservative uh, but I am purposefully leaving you with like this is a big question and all we did today was set up like the intensity of this question um and I hope you really sit with it um for next week uh, so I'm just going to read it. There's a comment in to the, there are two comments into the chat. Oh, Akiva, do you want to just say what you wrote out here? This is just when you were talking about the way in which God creating human beings could be thought of as a kind of parenthood um, yeah. and giving birth to children. And that's very strongly reflected in the way the language of God's creation of human beings is reflected and paralleled again in Adam and Chava's creation of Sheit in Parakeh. Yeah, and we shouldn't forget about Sheit, right? Because similar to Hana, who at the end of the day does have other children that she gets to keep, like Sheit at the end of the day is the other child who, um, who does live. So that's also very, very important. Um, but there's some, there's like a piece of this where it's like you have to almost like earn your right to like parents a live child by sacrifice first. Um, and maybe like God never gets to also, which is also kind of complicated. Um, Deborah, I don't know if you're still here or if you wanna say what you were thinking of here. I can just also read your comment. So to what extent Hannah sacrificed turning her son over to Eli, the direct cause 
of Shmuel growing up with Eli, who is demonstrably a bad example of the father, yes, considering his natural children who were doing all kinds of terrible things to people bringing sacrifices and to women who were hanging out around the Mishkan, um, so that Shmuel becomes a father just like Eli with corrupt children, so that the people demand a king, so that the rest of Jewish history happens. Is she setting in motion a good process or a bad process? Good, but I would ask that question even about God, <laughs> right? Like when God set up this like sacrifice your children model that we somehow are like commemorating all over on Rosh Hashanah and, and that then leads to this like incredible anxiety in the liturgy of like, I don't know, am I your child? Am I your slave? Like, do, do I have... A, a love relationship with you or do you just do with me whatever you want like I don't know how you like um, and and like the, the deep anxiety that's like reflected in in that language um it's it's a it's almost like a direct result of of a process set in motion by God that just gets um relived over and over again throughout these generations um good so Ariel wants to know how do we judge success what is underlying Chazal's choice of texts for Rosh Hashanah. Good. We're going to talk about all those things next week. I mean, right, what is success? Maybe this is actually meant to inspire, right? There's a version of this where it's like, yep, this is real life. Children die. We sacrifice our children. Um, and we have to remember, like, we have to, like, take off our 21st century goggles where children, and not, of course, not all children today even survive, but, like, for most of the time that people were reading these texts, like the idea of having a child who died, like resonated personally for like a lot, a lot of people, right? Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot there in terms of like, what is success? Um, I think that's a big question. What is underlying Chazal's choice of text for Rosh Hashanah? Yeah, sometimes we know and sometimes we don't know. Um, and there's, you know, 2000 years of ink spilled exactly on that question, um, but, um, yeah, we're going to look at all of those things. Um, do other people want to hop in with questions at this time? I feel like it's a little hard because you're all going to go home and be like, someone's going to be like, what's that cheer about? And you're like, well, I'm very disturbed. <laughs> um, and I don't know that next week is going to make you less disturbed if I'm honest. Maybe we'll try and go for a little bit of inspiration. And hopefully if you just came today, then at least when you say Hayomarat Olam this year, you'll pay attention to it and be like, wow, this is a really disturbing text. Um, and then when you'll be ready for Yom Kippur when you're like, Anu Amecha, or... <laughs> <laughs> we're your lover, or we're your slave, or you're our king, or we're a million different options, and we sing that also, so fun, I have no idea who I am to you, you would never say that to a human in that tune, um, and um, yeah, okay, uh, I don't know who this person is, update says, Hi, Rabbani Oya, this is so fascinating. Thank you. And you were talking about Hana. It made me wonder if maybe throughout the generations, the goal slash appeal of, hello, Baya, um, the goal slash appeal of parenting got twisted from creating and nurturing to feeling the sacrifice. Could it be that Hana's actions were actually misguided and not about taking back control, right? So maybe it wasn't Hana like trying to hack the system, but actually she felt like, no, like the optimal goal of parenthood really is child sacrifice um and um that definitely 
would be a sad possibility. And you do really see her, I mean, maybe, right, she thinks that before she has the child. And then, right, you actually have just, it's a really rich text in Shmuel right there. You have so much back and forth between Hannah and, and her. There's just so much about her. That's amazing. Um, and you see, like, she has this baby and at least like, okay, let's go. It's time to go up. And she's like, I'm gonna stay here with him. I think we're just gonna cuddle over here and you guys will go. Um, and um, just like a really, really beautiful like insight into motherhood over there. Um, and um, yeah, but it could be that she, like so many of us, really, you can't know what it's gonna be like until you're in it. Um, and she doesn't know like what what parenthood will really feel like. I, I think Baya, you know, that's a totally um, a totally reasonable suggestion. Okay, Akiva, I'm thinking about the contrast between the exiled children from their parents already at the moment of creation and the other vision of children leaving parents at the outset, right? Right, so there's two pieces. There's parents being megarish, their children, and then there's the active children leave their parents in order to get married. And we don't normally think about marriage as sacrifice, or like the marriage of your children as sacrifice. Usually we're like, we dance a majinka. Um, and, but right, like there seems to be this really strong sense that like parent-child separation is necessary. And if it happens too young, then it's sacrifice. And at a certain age, it's it's happy. And that, that's a, Akiva, I think that's a really astute point about like, um seems like a very fine line like it's the same activity it's parents leaving their children but in one instance it's it's horrible and these mothers are crying in pain for not being able to be with their children and then on the other hand it's like oh my child left because he got married what a wonderful thing um and um and that's and that's what they're supposed to be doing. And they're supposed to be building houses of their own. And that's so joyous for them when they build their own homes that they don't have to serve in the military. Um, so um, yeah, complicated stuff. All right, um, to be continued with like more questions and confusion and maybe some suggested answers um, next week. Wow, thank you so, so much, Ravineet Sana. I can't wait for next week. Um, and thank you to all of our participants for your excellent, excellent questions and for being part of our learning community. Um, a few announcements before we go. We have a very busy Elsman here at Drisha. We have more classes coming up tomorrow with Rav Matthew Nitzanim, who will be teaching at 2 p.m. Eastern on the topic of Tashlech, and Rabinit Sutton, who will be teaching um, tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern on the topic of Piyut. The Stanley Rudolph High Holidays Memorial Lecture um, is hosting Rabbi Danny um, Seagal this Sunday, the 10th of September at 11 a.m. Eastern. Um, it's not too late to join him for Awaken the Morning, how to invite in the new year. You can sign up for that and many more of our classes for Elul's Man uh, at 578.drisha.org slash Elul. So see you all next week.